Wonderful to see you and wonderful to pray with you for our nation and other things. That's where the, the power lies, to beseech the King of Kings to do mighty things on behalf of our country uh, that comes through prayer. The Lord Jesus has enabled it. Did you know that? Because of what he's done, we have bold and confident access to the throne of grace. Think about it. We can come before an otherwise unapproachably holy God and we can make our petitions. I want us to talk about the Lord Jesus a little more tonight. You don't get tired of talking about him, do you? Yeah, me neither. I didn't think so. Listen, um, he's going to be executed a, a few hours from the time of the text we'll read in just a second. And the manner uh, by which he will be executed is perhaps the most excruciating devised by humankind. He knows all about it. He anticipates it, but he's loving and has his uh, disciples on his heart and mind. He's not consumed by his fate. He came to take to the cross, and he tried to prepare his disciples for it because they seemed woefully unprepared. They didn't get it. He told them of his soon departure but it just, it just didn't ring uh, true to them. How could it be that he who first has given them so much hope, a messianic hope, a new kingdom on earth, how could it be that he soon would uh, be taken from them and they would be left to who knows what fate? They would be on their own. So things just did not compute. You can sympathize with them and uh, I can as well, and the Lord surely did. He was so very sensitive, and he did what he could in his last few hours here on earth to prepare them for his departure and other future events. It's very telling to see what he had to say in the last few hours. We've been going over it, and I'd like for us to spend a little time listening a little more to his words his last words, here it is, it's in John 16, we'll pick up tonight where we left off last time, so it would be verse 12 tonight, we'll start there, John chapter 16, verse 12, here's what the Lord said, his audience are the ones who would come to be known as the apostles, minus one, uh, Judas, the betrayer, is already on his way to do so. Uh, the Lord had been with them at uh, the Last Supper. It's his last formal meal with them. And this is one of the things he said to them, verse 12. He said, I, I have many more things to say to you. Don't you wish you knew what he had in mind? What are these many more things he would have said to them? Well, you don't have to wonder about it or wish to know of them. Uh, you have access to them. It's called the New Testament. Did, did, they don't know this yet. But the very ones whom he is addressing would hear what he has to say in fullness later on, and they would record it for the benefit of one such as you and I 2,000 years later. At the time, however, he said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's very sensitive, and he understood that they were limited. In what regard? Well, they were limited intellectually. I mean, he had great truths to share with them. 
that would bring their minds into eternity future and their minds were too small. His truths are infinite, they're finite, and they, he knew they couldn't assimilate it at all now. This was no criticism of them, it's just the way it is. They're human and therefore limited in their capacity to receive all that he had intellectually. But they were also limited, affected emotionally. He knew, being the divine counselor, that they were consumed with confusion and sorrow and despair and fear about his impending departure, and they just, because of their emotional state of affairs, they just couldn't hear what he had to say. It's good to be sensitive like this to one another. The Lord, he's the master teacher. You know what he knew? He knew that spiritual growth and maturity is progressive. You know, if you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus and chose to tonight, in an instant, you would be ushered into an entirely different sphere. Uh, we, we refer to that as being born again. In a spiritual sense, you would be moved from one domain, one sphere of influence to an entirely different one. And the new sphere of influence would be characterized by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That isn't something you grow into. That could, that could be your experience the minute you say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. Come into my life. I believe you suffered and died in my place. Be my personal savior. Live in me and help me to be the person you want me to be. Uh, that's, that's an instantaneous thing. But growing is a, an incremental thing. Nobody is subject to instantaneous spiritual maturity. And so the Lord knows even these with him have to grow step by step. And so he's very patient and sensitive and willing not to unload all that he could have that couldn't receive it for the reasons I mentioned. And so he's going to share with them things little by little. And that's, by the way, how it happens with us. We grow. Uh, I, I hope you're running after Jesus. He is your Savior. But I hope you're running after him to learn more and more about him. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called a disciple, and the word disciple in the original language means a learner, one who's in the process of learning. So we want to learn from the Lord Jesus. One of the things uh, I would encourage you to pray, I, I do so myself, is that God would give me a more of an appetite for what he has to offer and more a capacity to digest it. Uh, I, I may not be ready for all of what he has, but I want to be more ready. So I ask him to increase my ability to di digest what he has. I wish you would pray the same thing. Anyway, you can see these apostles, they're not ready for all he has, but they eventually will be, and he's being very sensitive to them. Now, do you notice thus far he doesn't rebuke them at all? He doesn't say, what's wrong with you people? Why are you the way you are? He doesn't do that at all. He's very patient. He's very sensitive. He was with them. He is with us today as well. He knows they're struggling emotionally, filled with sorrow and sadness. He accepts it and works around it, if you will. And so he holds off on all that he had to say and instead tells them just a little bit, why? Well, he knows that help is on the way for them, even when he's gone. 
In fact, he knows that the helper is on the way. Look at this, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit, and so the Lord Jesus knew that the Spirit, it's his Spirit, it's the Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, he knew that this one would be coming when he departs, and this one, whom he referred to as the helper earlier on, would help these to come into fuller understanding of things they can't understand at this point. Do you notice uh, the word spirit? Uh, This isn't a grammar class, but maybe this will be interesting to you. Um, That's in the neuter in the original Greek, Not, not masculine or feminine. The word spirit is neuter which means it um, should receive a neuter pronoun, but it doesn't. It receives a masculine pronoun, he, see? But when he, masculine pronoun, the spirit, that's neuter. It just doesn't match, it's discordant. It's grammatically incorrect, but it's theologically right on target. Why? Because the spirit, is not a force, an impersonal energy source. The spirit is a he. The spirit has personality, a mind, emotions, a will. The spirit is the third person in what we refer to here as the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Oh, they're different, and they're the same. How do you figure that out? I can't but I can sure accept it to be true. They have the same essential nature, though different functions. And so the spirit is real. He, he, the spirit, when he comes, the Lord says, notice he's referred to as the spirit of truth. Isn't that interesting? Of all the descriptive terms the Lord Jesus could use with regard to the spirit, notice how he refers to him, spirit of truth. I hope you find that refreshing in this day of deception and distortion, even of what should be objective and factual information. It's amazing how things are getting twisted today. It's hard to find a truth teller. It's hard to find truth. And the Lord Jesus said, and I hope this is encouraging, ah, but I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. Everything about him will be characterized by truth. He will, he will bring the truth to you. He will, he will put his finger on that which is not true in your life. Everything about him has to do with truth. This is his whole purpose, to bring God's truth to God's people. And it says he will guide you into all the truth. You know, we sang a, many beautiful songs tonight, one of which was uh, expressing thanksgiving to God for having saved us. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. A beautiful, beautiful opportunity to express gratitude for our salvation. What did we get saved from? Well, we got saved from the penalty of our sin. We got saved from the wrath of a holy God. And we also got saved from being so susceptible to non-truth. When you accepted Jesus, you got the mind of Christ. And so he saved us from the wrong thinking. He saved us from darkness and from error so that you and I can be rightly minded about things we otherwise would not, we would not be able to discern. 
That is a wonderful thing to thank God for. We're not better than anybody, but he has really opened our eyes, so we have a position on the moral imperatives of the day, which I doubt many of us had before we knew Christ. We see marriage differently today. We see the sanctity of life differently today. We see the management of funds differently today. We see all kinds of things differently today. That's because the spirit of truth who has come to guide us into all truth, is in fact doing his ministry in our lives. And the Lord says of him, he, he, he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. You know, if someone tells you uh, of an experience they've had, a dramatic experience, and they attribute it to the Holy Spirit, but that experience doesn't square with the words of Christ, that person is deceived because according to this verse, the Holy Spirit <laughs> and the Son of God are in harmony with one another. He will not speak on his own initiative. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything apart from Christ, but whatever he hears from me, from Jesus, he will speak. So the work of the Spirit is never divorced from the Word of God. One time, a lady came to me to share with me a rather dramatic experience she had. She was quite disappointed because I didn't uh, apparently register too much enthusiasm for it. And uh, she essentially said, what is your problem? She said to me. And I said, well, well uh, I, I can't judge the veracity of your experience because it's your experience. See, that's the point. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen. I can't weigh in on it because it's a subjective experience. The only objective truth we have is that which is contained in the Bible. Therefore, I told her if I was you, I would be careful about being more enthused about extra-biblical experiences than what flows directly from Scripture. And I asked her if she could find any place in Scripture that seemed to validate the experience uh, she had wanted for me to have. And uh, she couldn't find it. And she essentially said, what does that have to do with anything? It was real to me. Well, I didn't dispute that. I'm persuaded. She was telling me the truth. It was real to her. It was a real deception to her. Folks, the Holy Spirit does not manifest himself in any way that isn't consistent with inscripturated truth. So the burden of responsibility on the one reporting a dramatic supernatural experience, which I believe in, uh, uh, the, the burden of proof is on the one reporting it to make sure it's consistent with Scripture. And if it's not, that person is deceived. And this spirit, the Lord says, he will disclose to you what is to come. And he did. And they, uh, the apostles, heard, and they wrote all about it. And you and I can read all about it today. Again, that's called the New Testament. They didn't see it coming yet. When the Lord left, he said, it's better that I go because I'll send the helper. And then the helper, again, incrementally would reveal to them truths they couldn't receive at this point. And when they heard these truths, they would, under inspiration, write it down. And that's called the New Testament, folks. They did it, and we have it today. If I could uh, 
just share a passage of scripture that's apart from John here. It's a wonderful passage that tells us essentially how we got the Bible. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Those are the writing apostles of the New Testament. They didn't come up with the books of the New Testament on their own. Men moved by the Holy Spirit communicated what they heard, wrote it down, and you and I have the privilege of reading it today. Well, the Lord furthermore goes on to tell us about the helper, the Holy Spirit, verse 14. He shall glorify me. Um, the Holy Spirit just didn't come to call attention to himself. He actually came to put Jesus on display. And the Lord said, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. The Spirit of Christ took all that pertains to Christ and he disclosed it to the apostles of Christ who then, by extension, have disclosed it to the people of Christ, ones like you and I sitting here even tonight. So through their recordings, the very books of the New Testament, all this which is from Christ has been written down and disclosed to us. And the Lord says in verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Can you see the uh, harmony in the Trinity? All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said uh, that he takes up, that's the Holy Spirit, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Can you see the working of the Trinity in that verse? What's the Father's is the Son's. What's the Son's is the Spirit. And what the Spirit has, he's disclosed to these writing apostles, and that's called the New Testament. So though there is diversity, once again, in the Trinity, there's unity and harmony in the Trinity. And so the Lord says, all things that the Father has are mine. What the Father has, the Son has. What the Son has, the Spirit has. And now this verse, verse 16. There are two things in verse 16 um, repeated, see if you can notice it as I read it, a little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Uh, the three words repeated twice are a little while. Two times it says a little while. What does it refer to? Let me offer this, and you can think about whether you think I'm correct. I believe the first little while refers to the crucifixion. A little while, you will no longer behold me. I think the Lord is referring to his soon-to-occur crucifixion. And I think the second little while refers to his post-resurrection appearances. Can you see it? And again, a little while, you will see me. You see, death was not the final word. The crucifixion didn't have the final word. In a little while, he'll be crucified, and then in a little while, oh, he will be resurrected, and he will reveal them, himself to them as alive from dead. I think that's what it means, but uh, I'll show you in a second. They didn't get it, at, and they didn't know what those two little whiles meant. So why did the Lord offer it? I think he offered it to comfort them. Look, uh, there are many here, we know this, who are in pain, even now, suffering in various ways, afflicted in various ways. I think these words offered to them for comfort can provide the same for us. Whatever it is we're going through in the grand scheme of things is really just for a little while. 
I love this passage in Romans 8, 18. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is not to minimize your pain. It's just maybe to help you manage it. It can be managed because it's not forever. In the grand scheme of eternity, it's for a little while. And that's what the Lord offers to them. He knows they're grieving and they're confused and they're experiencing sorrow and he can't explain fully what's going on and why he's going to die. They don't get it. They can't receive it. They're very limited. But he at least can give them a time indicator. He could say, it's just for a little while. And so verse 17, some of his disciples, therefore, they said to one another, they're talking about this, you see. They said, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. See, they don't get it. They don't know what he meant. A little while, you won't see me. A little while, you will see me. And so they're not speaking to him. They're speaking to one another, trying to make sense over what he said. And so they were saying, verse 18, what is this that he says, a little while? We, we don't know what he's talking about. Why don't they ask him? <laughs> they have a very present need and a very present Messiah, and they don't go to him. Why not? I suppose for the same reasons you and I don't. <laughs> Whatever that may be. What keeps us from running into the arms of Jesus? Right away. Not as a last resort, as a first resort. I don't, is it pride? Is it, I don't know, is it busyness, distraction? Do we doubt he cares? I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, why are they laboring over this? He's right there. Instead, they, they discuss this amongst themselves instead of speaking to him. But it's God in their midst. And so here's what happens, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. See, he's God. He's not only all wise and can see their nonverbals, he also can peer into their hearts. He knows they're puzzled by this unanswered question. And so he intervenes and identifies it, but he doesn't really answer it. He really doesn't bring clarity to the question. Here's what happens, verse 20. Truly, truly. That's an emphasis. Uh, amen, amen is what he said. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. He kind of skips over the specific theological matter at hand. He doesn't answer their question about what do these little whiles mean. He takes them beyond it, paints with a broader stroke, and essentially says, soon, when I die, you will lament over it. But those who reject me and hate me, they'll rejoice over it. But hang in there. The very thing that's caused you sorrow will thereafter be a source of your joy. That's what he says. He says, my death will be bitter agony for you. You will see me pass in a humiliating and excruciating way. 
you will not be able to make sense over this. This should not be befalling the one you're believing on to be your king. He should not be subject to this mistreatment at the hand of the Jews, at the hand of the Romans. He should not be subject to all of You're not going to get it. You're going to lament over my death. But others will applaud it. They'll call for it. They'll be relieved by my absence. But hang in there. Soon, this sorrow of yours will be turned to joy because you will realize the purpose of my death. It was to die so that you may live. And furthermore, you will realize my death is not final. You will see me soon alive from the dead, and then you'll rejoice forevermore. And so to sort of bring this home, the Lord, again, the master teacher, gives them a, an illustration with which they would all be familiar. Here it is, verse 21. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. That's what the Lord says. The same event that caused her pain will soon cause her great joy. And that will happen to you too. This reminds me, when my wife was uh, in labor with our first son, I didn't really know how to handle all this. I thought I did, but I wasn't too good at it. She was in labor for like 23 hours. When she told me uh, she thought it was time, I, we rushed out to the car. You know, we had the little suitcase ready to go. And it was probably 2 o'clock in the morning and uh, no traffic. I was flying through the streets to the, to the hospital. I was praying for no red lights and... Well, there were red lights, but then I was praying that I wouldn't get caught for running the red lights. I had to get her there. This is important. This is a baby, you know. And Well, I got her there to the hospital, and I was relieved, and she goes into the room. Here comes the doctor and all the rest, and 23 hours later, the baby popped out. I went crazy for no reason riding through the streets. Anyway, uh, um. While she was in labor, I just thought this would be, it was just exciting, it was just wonderful, you know, the whole wonder of it all. And I made the mistake of saying, oh boy, we need to do this again. Um, we, we need to have like more kids. We just need to, well, she was like in excruciating pain and all the rest, and I'm talking about more kids. And that was not, that was just a bad thing to do. So I didn't do that. The, with the second one, uh, I, I told her, I thought this would help. Never again. I told her never. I thought that would comfort her, but it didn't really work. But anyway, the Lord is saying here, you see, that's the analogy. That's the illustration. He's using a woman in labor is, labor is in labor pain. But soon, the very thing that caused her pain causes her great joy. And that's what the Lord is saying. My death is going to cause you great pain. But soon thereafter, when you realize that it's not final, and when you realize the ramifications of it, the very thing that caused you pain will cause you great joy. Therefore, verse 22, you too now have sorrow, but I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. And in that day, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Listen, before Jesus ascended, they could directly ask him 
about anything and for anything. Well, he's telling them that's not going to come to an end when I leave you. In fact, it's going to get better because now you could, he's telling them, you could address the Father in the same direct manner with which you have become accustomed to addressing me. Until now, verse 24, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, you will receive that your joy may be made full. You know what he's uh, saying? When I ascend, when I go to be with the Father, you're not going to lose, you're going to gain, because then you will be able to directly make your requests known to the Father in my name. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming, he says, when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. What does that mean? You know, he would have liked to speak to them in a clear and plain way, a way they could receive, but they couldn't. These are lofty truths. So he's spoken parables and metaphors and figures of speech, figures, uh, uh, figurative language that they couldn't f fully understand. But he's saying, well, that's going to stop uh, after my departure and and when you see the events that follow my departure, I'll be able to speak to you in plain language because nothing will be hidden from you at that point. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, remember they didn't have the benefit of looking back on these things. They don't know they're coming. After the helper comes to you, things will be much clearer, says the Lord, and I will not have to speak to you in such unclear ways. In that day, verse 26, you'll ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. That doesn't mean he is not interceding for us. He is simply saying uh, to them, you will have, when I leave, when I'm resurrected, when I ascend to the Father, you will have direct access to the Father through me, the mediator. And why is this? Now here's my favorite verse in this whole passage, verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. So you want to just pause there for a second and take that in. <clears throat> for the Father himself loves you. The Father from eternity past has loved the Son. We know this. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Remember the words of the Father. And now that beloved Son says, yeah, and my Father himself loves you just as he loves me. This is a tough battle for us as Christians. Perhaps this is the, the toughest thing required of us as Christians, to accept the Father's unbridled, irrational, unending love. It's very difficult because we have very little to hang it on, to relate it to especially when we perceive ourselves to be unlovely, and we are. When we find nothing lovable about us, and there may not be, to hear that the Father, nonetheless, loves us, that's not easy to accept. Work at it. Wrestle with it. Whatever else you may be wrestling with in the Christian life, whatever disciplines, I'm, I'm working hard at reading the Bible more. I'm working hard at coming to church more. Whatever it is, good things. Work at this one more than any. Work at accepting the Father's love. 
for the Father. The reason the Lord Jesus said, you can go directly to him. When I leave, I'll make a way. I'll mediate a relationship between you and him. And you can directly address him just as I do. Why? Why? Here's the reason. For the Father himself loves you. And why is it that the Father does? Here's the answer. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So what we see here is that the Father loves us because we have not rejected his Son. How do you feel about people who mistreat your child or grandchild? I'm sure you don't have warm feelings towards that person. And so the Father is, the Lord is speaking our language. My Father loves you because you have manifested love to me and I'm his beloved son. And the way you have loved me is by taking me seriously. You have not rejected me. You have embraced the totality of my sacrificial work on your behalf. You've not diminished, demeaned, nor minimized my work on the cross for you. And that's the work the Father sent me for. You've not dismissed it nor diminished it. And because of that, you love me. And because you love me, my Father loves you. And so our affection for Jesus evokes affection from the Father. Love for the Son calls forth love from the Father. So look no further for the reason why the Father loves you. It isn't about anything lovable in you or me. It's because of our response to the Father's Son. Our love response to Jesus has evoked a love response from the Father. And then the Lord says in verse 28, I think in uh, one verse, I think he summarizes the totality of his redemptive purposes, work, and life. Look at it. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. That, that verse, in, in just a few words, is the summation, I think, of the entire redemptive work of Christ. Here's what I mean. First, you see in that verse his humiliation. Look, I came forth from the Father and have come into this world. See, he pre-existed before the world was in glory with the Father. And so for him to come forth from the Father and into this world meant he had to step down and become enfleshed, lay aside certain divine privileges. That's his humiliation. And then the next phrase, I think, is a reference to his exaltation. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. First, the humiliation, Jesus was crucified. Then the exaltation, Jesus was resurrected and ascended to the Father. Someone called this the great movement of salvation. It's movement from heaven to earth and back to heaven again. And in a way, we will follow suit, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. First, there is the humiliation, then the exaltation, first the cross, and then the crown. As with Jesus, so too with us. Well, his disciples said, verse 29, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. All of a sudden, they got it all figured out. And they're essentially saying, good night, 
if you knew what we were talking about before we brought it to your attention, if you knew the question we were laboring over and addressed it without us even informing you of it, therefore you must be God. And now we really know you're God and we believe everything you say and everything is fine. And Jesus answered them, verse 31, do you now believe? Well, they believed um, in a way, but it was sort of an incomplete uh, sort of belief. It has to grow. And so the Lord is sort of testing them. Do you, do you now believe? They were sincere, but they didn't know their limitations. They're, they're a little cocky now. Now we get it. Now we know everything. Now you, you got it figured out. You are now using plain language, which we could receive. Everything is fine. So the Lord, here's what he does to them, and he does it to us. And we don't like it, but it's good for us. He gives us an opportunity to see what we're really made of. Nobody here likes it. Uh, that's the way it is. That's part of growing in the Christian life. Not only to know more Jesus, more, uh, more of Jesus, but to know more about ourselves. Look, it's not a pretty picture. We, we can't be all we want to be. That's just not true. Uh, we should not believe in ourselves. That is a very foolish philosophy of life to follow. And in order to diminish our self-involvement, self-reliance, self-confidence, the Lord goes out of his way to point out what our self really looks like. So here it is, verse 22. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. That's what he said. That's what he knew they would do. These are the ones who in arrogant self-confidence said, we got it all scoped out. Now we believe. Let's move on to something else. And the Lord says, not so quick, buster. You don't really get it. I mean, soon you'll all be scattered. You'll go to your place. You'll seek safety and anonymity, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. He knew that these who just rather self-assuredly made confession about their confidence and their faith in the Lord, that was a little too much. He knew that they would be the very ones who would flee from him and leave him all alone in the midst of his enemies. So that is a rather remarkable revelation of human nature, but I'd like for you to see what is even a more remarkable revelation of divine nature in the last verse, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, says Jesus, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. So that's an extraordinary thing to me about Jesus. He saw the weakness of his followers he knew everything about them in advance. He knew, in fact, that they would scatter and flee and leave him alone to his enemies. He knew of their flaws and of their sins. He knew that they would turn from him, even deny him at times. And yet, he bequeaths this blessing to them and to us. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. So we see the extraordinary fickleness and unreliability of human nature, and we see the extraordinary grace of divine nature. 
It doesn't look like a proper response to betrayal, rejection. His intimate followers in whose lives he had such a great investment, uh, they're fleeing, they're scattering. It doesn't look like a fitting response for him to say, I want to give you peace, the kind you can't find anywhere in the world. A fitting response might be, really? We're through. You turn your back on me, I turn my back on you. We don't get anything like that. It's an extraordinary revelation of God's divine and gracious nature. So I, I ask you this as we close. Are you a Christian and yet have failed the Savior at times? Maybe even as we sit here tonight. Are you a Christian yet maybe in the midst of a sin area? You don't seem willing to shed. Are you a Christian yet have doubts and confusion about the whole Christian thing? Are you a Christian yet are depressed? You're here, but you kind of dragged yourself in. Your mood is not right. It's way too low. You're putting on a happy face. People are saying, how are you? Good to see you. You say, I'm fine. How are you? Good to see you. But it's not good with you. You're depressed. Are you a Christian who um, has problems with anxiety? Maybe interrupted sleep patterns, maybe panic attacks. What does the Lord say to you? Does he say, get it together? Does he say, clean up your act? Does he say, I don't know, fast, pray, take two verses and go to bed? Nah. He says to you what he said to them. At their worst, he was at his best. He said, I came to give you peace. You don't have it in full measure, but I came to give it to you. And he says, the first thing I did was to provide a way whereby you could be in a peaceful relationship with my Father, an un otherwise unapproachably holy God. You can be at peace with God. And then as a result, some of the ramifications, you can begin progressively to be at peace with others. And then also, little by little, you can come to have the experience of internal peace, the kind of peace which passes understanding. Jesus doesn't say, get it together. I'm ashamed of you. How could you be this way? Don't you believe in me? How could you be a Christian and having these struggles? Are you kidding me? Uh, we just got a picture of real people. They were intellectually limited. They were filled with doubt. They had all kinds of emotional issues to such an extent the Lord couldn't even pour into them all that he wanted to because their, 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 their hearts, their, their feelings, they, they, they were so wounded they couldn't hear. You've been that way. I've been that way. These are real people who the Lord had to deal with. These are Lord people, real people who the Lord worked in and through. And these are real people whom the Father himself loves. These are real people. We are real people here. What's his response? Get it together. How could you? Show me it in Scripture. I'll tell you his response. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you a lecture, a sermon 
<laughs> a paddling. I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. I'll give you shalom. Yeah. In spite of all those other things I, you experience, I can make it, and so could you. If I know that Almighty God will never leave me nor forsake me. And if I know his stated purpose is this, you can't find peace, says he, in anything or anybody in the world. That's what I came to give you. In the world, you have tribulation. Take it easy. Take it easy. Don't despair. Take courage. I've overcome the world. Well, what does that mean for me or you? If we're in Christ, we share in his victory. And he says, <laughs> in me you will have peace. No matter what the struggle is, I can hang in there for a little while, knowing even for that little while, Jesus is with me. Never will he turn his back on me. Have you ever denied Christ? I have. I, I, I shared a few incidents with you that happened where I, I, I denied Christ, and, and I, I surely have missed many opportunities to talk to people about him. All the rest... I've had my struggles just as you have. <laughs> but this text and ones like it tell me I qualify for a sustained relationship with God and for the peace of God because I'm just as messed up as these guys. <laughs> that's the qualification for the ministry of the helper in our lives and that's the qualification for the manifestation of the grace of God when we are at our worst he is at his best, and here's proof of it right here. These guys whom they don't know it now will be used to write the New Testament, which you and I feed on down to this very day. What a bunch of wipeouts. <laughs> they're just like you, and they're just like me. You may feel like the odd man or woman out because of whatever it is, that you're struggling with, but you do not know how common and typical your struggle is. In the world, you have tribulation. We have tribulation. There is affliction and there is trouble, but Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says, I'll never give up on you, even when you're tempted to give up on me. I've come to give you peace. I hope you've accepted Jesus as your Savior because, as I mentioned earlier, immediately the penalty of your sin is removed. See, that's why he died, so that we wouldn't. He was punished for our sins so that we could be forgiven. In an instant, you could ask Christ to come into your life because he lives, you know, and be your Savior, forgive your sin. But there's much more to it than just the mere forgiveness of sin. <laughs> there's victory in living life. Because Jesus said, <laughs> as great as your sin is, my grace is greater. We sang about it. It's amazing grace. Amazing grace. 
See, that's the experience Christians have and nobody else could have. That in spite of our makeup and flaws and inclination to do and say even horrific things, this Jesus says, I'll never let you go. And by the way, not just me, my father won't let you go either because my father himself loves you because you have accepted me. Can you see what a blessing this is? Hey, sing. Let's sing victory in Jesus. Our pastor's going to come. Sing, help me, because you know I can't do this. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He saw, see, he did it, and bought me, listen, with blood. He, I knew him. All our lives to him plunged me Thank you, Lord Jesus, for eternal victory. We're confident of it, but even victory today. Thank you, O oh God, for the assurance of your consistent, irreversible, yes, irrational love for us. Thank you for showing us that we are, when we're at our worst, you are at your best. Lord Jesus, we love you. And that has begotten for us your Father's love for us. It means everything to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.